is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. How are you today? This hour, you're going to jump on board a train. It's not just any old train. This is an iron ore train that's snaking its way through the Pilbara. Also, Australian winemakers are trying to get more of our bottles of wine on the menus at pubs, clubs and restaurants in the United Kingdom. And now that sort of COVID is, well, to one side at the moment anyway, it's a chance to sort of get over there and um, show off some of our wares, get people sampling it. And with it being a couple of years since we've really been able to have a chance to get over there, there are some new and exciting products that they're able to share around and enjoy and hopefully make a few sales over there. We'll get to that shortly here on the Country Hour. First, though, the degradation of Western Australia's rangelands is very often blamed on livestock. But a group of pastoralists recently got together just to learn how their cattle and sheep can actually be used to restore and revitalise the state's pastoral region. Brian Welberg is a holistic management educator. He says if you take a regenerative land management approach, livestock can actually do wonders for the environment, productivity and your profitability. A lot of people come to holistic management because really excited about using the tool of livestock, which are often vilified as being bad for the environment. But what we know is properly managed livestock where we mimic how those large herds used to operate in the presence of pack hunting predators can actually build environments, store carbon, create springs, get streams flowing like they used to. So we can use livestock to achieve that. But again, it needs planning, it needs um, thought, it needs knowledge. And so what we do is we, we go around sharing. And again, we're open to all all ideas, but for most people, the idea of using livestock, which as um, Joel Sullivan always says, are solar powered, can reproduce themselves, and are good to eat when you've finished using them. You know, I always say to folks, try and do that with a John Deere tractor. Um, you know, it's a great, great way of improving your productivity and your profitability. All of the pastoralists attending today, um, livestock would be a, a major part of their businesses. How do you use animals to uh, regenerate country? Animals basically give us two tools. Um, they give us the tool of grazing, and they either overgraze or regeneratively graze. And, and that's all about timing. It's allowing plants to recover their energy. And overgrazing happens plant by plant. You know, we were accustomed to talk about overgrazed ranges or overgrazed paddocks. Uh, you overgraze plants individually, plant by plant. So, again, it's, it's, it's moving animals on before they can come back and regraze plants, before they've recovered the energy. And it's making sure they don't come back too soon, again, ensuring that that plant has recovered the energy. So, you know, that's the first part of grazing is managing to stop overgrazing or reduce overgrazing by managing time. The other big tool those animals give us is animal impact and that is all about bunching animals. The more we bunch animals, the more they use hoof action to loosen up the soil, to um, knock over old grey oxidising material, to create more ground cover. So how do you keep animals together uh, and also moving in an environment like the southern rangelands where there's no fences? Yeah. Again, that's that's been a huge challenge and... Um, 
You know, if, if water was abundant, putting more mobs together uh, is one uh, way of doing it and even thinking in terms of uh, compiling mobs from different stations. So we end up with a really big herd, which means more country has time to recover. But obviously that's limited by resources and water is going to be the major one. So, you know, what we've been talking about in class today, and there's, there's wonderful technology starting to come in. You know, virtual fencing's one Self-herding, uh, developed by Bruce Maynard and a, and a couple of other people, basically getting that mobbing and herding instinct back into our cattle, because for a couple of hundred years now we've we've actually trained them out of that. So we put animals in a paddock, and the first thing they do is they spread out and they hammer your best plants, your most productive plants, and of course those are the ones that are going to leave the paddock and production drops. So if we can start breeding that herding instinct back into our animals. You know, the smaller properties, electric fencing, you know, we've got folks now moving 4,500 head every day. They build a new paddock every day of, you know, 36 hectares. And the benefits of that are huge. You know, we think it takes a lot of time, but all these people are actually reporting better time management because, you know, traditionally you'd fill up the ute with fuel, you'd spend a whole day, you'd check 32 water points, you might see 5 or 10% of your animals. These folks are going up there, they spend three hours, they build a new paddock, they see 100% of the animals and literally they're back home in three hours. Holistic management educator Brian Welberg with Lucinda Jose. 10 past 12. Well, Joe Clues from Malangata Station near Yalgu travelled 225 kilometres west to Geraldton for the training, which is part of the Southern Rangelands Revitalisation Pilot Project. Joe left the course feeling really inspired and full of ideas about what she could put into practice at her place. And rather than make any huge changes at the station right away, she says she's taking things one small step at a time. The sheer size of it is actually quite overwhelming at times and you kind of go, oh, what on earth can I do that is actually going to improve things around here with what I've got? So uh, instead of actually being overwhelmed and sort of thinking about the whole station, I've in fact actually sort of brought it right back to just thinking about what is going on around the homestead. Because the homesteads and the homestead paddocks were generally the ones that got abused the most over time, especially with sheep properties, is because the sheep would be brought back down to the shearing sheds and they would be held in the paddocks around the around the homesteads to uh, wait for shearing. And uh, yeah, so we're actually, um, I'm just utilising my very small flock of sheep with the Kelpies, keeping them bunched up together. So the Kelpies and I and the Maremmas, we all go out walking in the morning with um, 200 sheep. And, uh, yeah, we just walk through the environment and the the sheep will eat as they're going. And uh, then, of course, yeah, we hope that they will actually park up somewhere during the day. And then, of course, they leave, leave their dung and urine there. And so the next time it rains, those little areas will be far more fertile, of course, because they've had the, the dung and the urine left there. And then we move the sheep on because they're not going to want to go back there anyway because they've gone and they're not going to want to sleep and eat where they have um, uh, defecated. So, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. And also photographs, lots and lots of photographs that we've been taking. And I've uh, yeah, started up, I had an old YouTube channel that I have started saving all of my video and uh, footage and stuff like that on uh, various things. So we can start in a very small manner 
and uh, hopefully we can start seeing some immediate results. So whereas we don't have very many animals, we're actually just going to utilise them in small spaces and then record it and monitor it from there. And what would be a, a signal of success for you in the short term? The re-establishment of perennial um, native grasses is actually uh, one of the big things that we are wanting to try and re-establish. Already we are actually seeing quite a marked increase and that's not due to anything that I've just learnt recently but that's due to actually having some spots that we have very lightly grazed and have been closed off from any other grazing pressure, so kangaroo as well as sheep. We don't have feral goats, which makes life a lot easier on the station. So, yes, we've got some trial plots that we have got. We're lucky enough to actually have a very big system of yards out the back of the homestead and uh, we have closed off some of those and we're sort of implementing the basic theory throughout those yards but, of course, it's in a very, very much smaller scale than what it would be if we were trying to implement over the station. Yelgu pastoralist Joe Clues, 14 past 12. Will Baston from Jimba Jimba Station, about 150 kilometres east of Carnarvon, was also in Geraldton for the holistic management training course. He thinks implementing the management system will be tough, but worth the effort. 150,000 hectare property like Jimba Jimba, it's got its challenges. There's, you know, a lot of creeks and rivers and fencing and, and water points. And so, yeah, look, it's a massive challenge over such a large area. And I think a lot of the stations here have been grappling with that over the last few days. But it's been an exciting space to be in. Have you got a plan of the first thing that you're going to do yet? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So probably uh, the attracted stations, so moving licks and hay to the locations we want cattle to have that impact. There's probably a few sites that we'd like to trial and test and then um, see on how the recovery goes and then, then magnify that on a larger scale. So try small, test and probe. That's the key message I've learnt out of this course and then take that to a bigger scale when possible. And what's the end goal for you? There is a, a, a verification uh, that you could go for with the holistic management. Would you like that verification? 100%. I mean, you want that independence to say that you're actually on track. It's not like organic certification and such, but the verification process is saying, yes, you're on the right way, you're improving country, you're moving in a sustainable approach. Uh, we're talking about you know years of degradation over 120 years of human impact and modern day human impact but thousands of years of impact on the landscape and holistic management is actually taking that into context and moving it forward in terms of activities that we're not even doing on our properties that we could be doing with animals so simplifying it not overall expensive you know pesticides and machinery and the rest is actually simple stuff but at scale uh, and changing the direction of where our environment is going. And what is one example of what success would look like for you? Uh, healthy rivers, healthy creek lines, stable soils, the perennial plants, so grasses and your forbs and diversity of plants and animals. And, um, yeah, just something that's really alive to look at, you know. And, and when the droughts have come along, and we know we have droughts in, in those semi-arid areas, is that we're resilient and we can actually um, have a profitable business. Pastoralist Will Baston from Jimba Jimba Station in the Gascoigne speaking to Lucinda Joyce. 17 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. 
Jessica Warriner from the newsroom is going to be coming in here shortly to talk to you, bring you up to date with what's making news this afternoon. First, though, millions of dollars worth of iron ore is loaded onto trains in the Pilbara, taken to local ports and exported overseas every day. So what is it like to sit in the driver's seat of one of these iron ore trains? ABC reporter Verity Gorman hopped on board a fully loaded Rio Tinto train to find out. 7067, what's the trouble? Control, just to let you know, about to start heading off and heading towards Rosella. There's 30,000 tonnes that we're lifting here. We've got three Lycos, uh, over 12,000 horsepower. The man you can hear there is Paul Lenahan. He's been with Rio Tinto for more than 50 years and used to drive trains in the Pilbara. But today he's in the observer's seat explaining what our driver Ray is doing as our fully loaded iron ore train prepares to leave Tom Price. You'll note that everything he does is very slow and steady. Um, it's a very gentle takeoff. And he's doing that so he can stretch the train right out because the train's over two kilometres long. Paul has plenty of experience when it comes to trains and is now the Inland Rail Project Superintendent. But he came to the Pilbara as a 17-year-old for what he calls the adventure of a lifetime. Do you still remember the first time you actually got in the driver's seat? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was in, was in Panawanica in nineteen seventy. Oh, 74, 75, I moved over to rail, so it was five years in mining. So it was a year in um, construction, five years in mining um, on the shovels. And, um, yeah, while I was there, um, I also was an unrestricted crane driver on the weekend, so I used to do the maintenance on the drills and the shovels, and during the week I'd operate the shovels, and on the weekend I'd uh, do the maintenance. And, uh, yeah, I, after period of time I sort of caught up to these train drivers having a few beers and I used to think god these guys come in so clean and then they started to brag about how much money they were earning but I said I want one of your jobs I'll get in on that <laughs> so next thing you know I was a train driver and the rest is history <laughs> a round trip for a Rio Tinto train from mine to port takes on average 40 hours the train we're in today is pulling 240 ore cars each has around 120 tonnes of iron ore in it. So how much is that worth? While prices fluctuate, when the price of iron ore is at $100 a tonne, each car is worth around $12,000. Times that by 240 ore cars, and you've got a trainload of iron ore worth close to $3 million. Yeah, so now we're at the bottom of uh, Wombank Junction and we've got quite a big climb to do here now. So what Ray's doing is he's picking up power at the front. But shortly after, our train comes to a sudden stop. So yeah, we received a penalty back there. There was a detection off a set of points. Um, so precautionary, it's penalised the train. We've had it checked out, it's okay. So we've got the signal text to come in and just see why that detected. 7067, worth control, got confirmation that uh, both are uh, all clear. And um, if you're right, we'll get you on the move and walk and clear of those minutes. What's the, um, the strangest, funniest, weirdest thing you've seen in the driver's seat? Scary. 
Uh, probably the scariest was, uh, yeah, one night, um, it was cold winter's night, and cattle, um, believe it or not, they don't like the cold weather. So they get in these cuttings, they get out of the wind, and they hurt up. So, yeah, the scariest time is I came around the corner and the whole cutting was just full of cattle. But in those days there, we could, you know, we'd turn our lights out, hit the horn, and, um, yeah, hopefully they clear. But, um, yeah, when you're looking at, uh, you know, 10 or 15 beasts standing on the track and you're at track speed and you're an empty train, yeah, it uh, gets the heart racing. What happened? Well, yeah, I clipped a couple of them, but... most of them got out of the way you know you sort of close your eyes there's not much you can do but uh, yeah sort of close your eyes and um what speed would you have been doing then i think i was doing about 75 a lot has changed since paul was in the driver's seat including automation of rio's trains the one we're riding on would normally be operated remotely by someone in perth more than 1500 kilometers away the company made its first delivery of iron ore by an autonomous train in the Pilbara in 2018. I asked General Manager of Rail Operations Brendan Brody Hall whether the auto haul project, which cost around $1 billion US, was worth it. It has been a really positive step forward for our business, both in terms of safety and productivity. Safety, uh, we do much, much less driving of light vehicles around the Pilbara compared to what we did before and it has improved our productivity as well our cycle times have reduced by over an hour on average so it has been a great step forward for our business and what's it meant for you know the train drivers does it still you know give them the satisfaction of being a train driver it's obviously a very different job now driving an autonomous train it is a different job there's no doubt about that our train drivers don't spend as much time on the locomotive as they once did and that's been a, a tough transition. They now uh, act more in a response mode, but critical roles to our business and a really important part. Have you had many leave because you know it's not what they signed up to? We have had some people choose to move on and do other things. That can be because of the type of work. It can be because of things like COVID for our national FIFO workforce. But on the positive side, we're regenerating our workforce now we've brought in more than 100 new people into our rail business in the last 12 months and that's provided a great opportunity to really bring in younger people entry-level roles into the rail industry and it's really helping us drive a positive change in our culture. While Rio's rail operations will continue to evolve one thing that will never change is Paul Lenahan's love of the Pilbara. How about the scenery? Ah, oh, there's one thing I um, never take for granted, you know, even the 50 years, you know, whether it's Panawanaka, Cape Lambert, Point Sampson, inland, you know, the morning rise and the, and the setting sun, I always never take it for granted, always appreciate it. And here we are. That was a soft landing, I didn't even know we stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Must be a skilled train driver. Yeah. Just chugging along snaking his way through the Pilbara with, what was it, $3 million worth, roughly, of iron ore on the back, in all the carts on the back. Rio Tinto's Inland Rail Project Superintendent Paul Lenahan, ending that report from Verity Gorman.
It's 25 past 12, an update from the newsroom in about five minutes or so. First, though, former federal independent MP for Indi and farmer Cathy McGowan has been appointed the new chair of AgriFutures. The Research Development Corporation looks after 13 agriculture industries, things like chicken meat, rice, bees and even thoroughbred horses. Cathy McGowan says she's delighted to take on the role. The reason why I really am keen to be doing this job for three years is that I believe agriculture is just so important for the future of Australia and it's our rural communities that underpin the success of ag and I am really interested in how we continue to grow and support our rural communities. We get workforce that we need, we get the education we need, we get the health services we need and then as well grow the jobs which come out of agriculture. 93% of Australian agriculture uh, produces 93% of all the food that's consumed in Australia and then 70% of our agricultural product is exported. And that's worth $64 billion you know, plus a year. So it's a really important industry. And I'm just, I've always loved it. I've grown up on a farm, worked in agriculture all my life. So I'm really keen now to be chair of this just wonderful future-directed research and development corporation. So AgriFutures is Research Development Corporation, but how would you describe to people what exactly it, it does mm. for farmers? There are 15 research and development corporations. So they basically cover off the major agricultural industries like people know about grains or dairy or MLA, which does meat and Australian wool innovation. So AgriFutures does the rural part of the research and development and it's also responsible for smaller industries that don't have their own big R&D group. So, for example, AgriFutures looks after bees, rice, pasture seeds and lots of others as well. So it works with the industry to set priorities, to help do the research and the extension, teaching people about it. But also it does new industries coming up. So if someone's got an interest, say, for example, in sesame seed, AgriFutures would do the beginning work on how that industry would grow. So they're currently working on sesame seed, seaweed, native pastures, which is really important, truffles even. So they pick up new industries as they come through. How's AgriFutures funded? Is it government funded or levy funded? Yeah, it's a mixture. It has government funding. It has levy funding. The rice growers put money in as part of their levies and the bee growers, so there's levies. But then there's also industry partnerships. So AgriFutures works with other groups and they put their money in together. So there's sort of three main forms of, of funding there. There's lots of talk always about technology emerging out of agriculture. What are some of the things that have caught your eye and got you excited about? Well, the whole topic of how do we get enough people to come and be involved in all the different spaces of agriculture? Because as you know, there's a huge shortage in the workforce. So I'm really keen that our (laughs) our best and bravest and most innovative come and work in agriculture and that we actually do really good work with our workforce. So not only at school level, though of course that's important, but also at uni level, but also then getting the skills that we need because agriculture, it's an opportunity for some of the most creative, exciting new technology to be applied to growing food and fibre. It's the time of the year when students are just finishing off making their choices for what they're going to do next. So I would like to say to any parents or aunts and uncles who are listening today, 
if your young people in your life are undecided, can I suggest you send them in the direction of agriculture to Wagga, to Melbourne, to CSU and or Armadale to get them to do a degree in ag and it will open up so many opportunities for them and give them just excitement and adventure or if they're researchers, opportunity to do amazing research. So we've just got a couple of weeks left before the university year gets underway or the TAFE year. So send your kids to ag is what I'd be saying. Cathy McGowan, the new chair of AgriFutures, speaking to Annie Brown. It's 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour and Jessica Warriner just stepped into the studio. What is making the headlines today, Jessica? Good afternoon. The Governor-General has acknowledged evolving views on Australia Day in his annual address. David Hurley says the day should give Australians the chance to reflect on 60,000 years of Indigenous culture and how to address the country's colonial past, but he says the debate shouldn't be divisive. A Pentagon press secretary says America's latest defence support package is part of an international effort to support the Ukraine in its war against Russia. US President Biden has announced Washington will send M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. The announcement came just hours after Germany declared Berlin would deliver tanks to the country. And the Kimberley town of Fitzroy Crossing has had a sleepless night after a large crocodile was spotted roaming the streets at about two o'clock in the morning. Locals and police spent several hours trying to figure out how to get the freshwater croc safely back into the Fitzroy River. More news at one. Jessica, thank you for that. In fact, I was looking at the video of, I think it was the police officers trying to sort of manoeuvre that croc um, onto, where were they? Were they trying to put him on the back of a truck or I something? I think so. And at one point someone had a, a, a towel they were trying to put what on. What was him. he thinking? I don't know. But the good, <laughs> apparently the croc is safe. Everyone is safe from what I've heard. So Oh, well it ends scared well, right? me. That, the old towel over the head of the croc just didn't work. You need to check It'll out that video. It'll be fine, right? <laughs> Yeah, plan B definitely was in order. Jessica, thank you very much for that. It is 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour and I think you can just go to the ABC's Instagram page and check out that video for yourself if you haven't already seen it or online. I'm sure it's there too. Uh, Quite something to watch, the old towel over the head of the crocodile attempt. Uh, Didn't work, as you can imagine. Uh, Still to come between now and the news at 1. No markets today. Of course, uh, public holiday, so no Mount Barker cattle market today or tomorrow. It is usually that two-day format at this time of year. I'm sure it's back to business this time next week, but no market today. So between now and the news at one, uh, really interesting story because, you know, we've got our own troubles here in Western Australia after all the, the flooding in the north of the state in the Kimberley and the damage that's been done to the road network and the bridge, of course, and the assessment that's going on and the money it's going to cost to do that. That's all still being calculated, of course. But it's not the only flood damage in Australia. Over in New South Wales, they've had their own problems with flood and damage to the road network. And in fact, it's, you know, a lot of farmers and regional councillors are saying it's sort of a, a billion dollar problem. And there's just not enough people not enough money to do the work. So they're thinking about actually allowing farmers to get involved and help fix the roads. You'll learn more about that shortly. And also heading off to London where there's been a wine event, an Australian wine event, just trying to get more wine on the menus over there in the UK. That's to come between now and the news at one and in a moment 
off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Twenty-seven to one. It's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad, how's it looking across the northern and eastern parts of the state this afternoon? Good afternoon, Belinda. Um, we're seeing uh, those uh, air showers and thunderstorms develop quite early today across the Kimberley, um, and they're continuing to spread uh, south, so extending across the Dempier Peninsula as I speak. And also, there's uh, thunderstorms developing over the interior as well today. Uh, the tropical low that we have been talking about over the last few days is sitting to the northwest of the state, so very low chance of it. Uh, expect uh, very low chance of it to develop into a tropical cyclone. It is moving southwest, so it's going to turn more towards the south on Friday and probably um, move very close uh, to the Pilbara East Coast or the far southwest of the Kimberley um, um, on Friday night in a very weak state. Um, it may either dissipate just offshore from the East Pilbara Coast or it may move inland as a very weak tropical low. Now, um, as this system sort of progresses uh, Southwards, towards the coast over the next couple of days, we will continue to see those increased showers and thunderstorms across the Kimberley and uh, spreading into the Pilbara and uh, and also through the interior. Um, there is a uh, an upper trough that is amplifying over the state, so it is going to it is going to drag a lot of tropical moisture into the interior of the WA over the next couple of days as that tropical low moves south. Um, so one thing to keep in mind is we still have water over the Roebuck Plain. Um, and so over the Great Northern Highway through the Roebuck Plain. So those increased thunderstorm activity will basically mean that water will remain over that stretch of the road uh, going into the weekend and early next week, so not likely to drain away anytime soon. Um, we also have seen uh, some renewed rises with this thunderstorm activity and with you know the thunderstorms continuing across the north. Um, you know There's potential for heavy falls with these thunderstorms. Uh, we'll continue to see those renewed river rises but at this stage the Fitzroy is expected to remain below minor uh, going over the next few days there is a flood warning out um, however um, through the uh, through the Degray river system and uh, we are looking at uh, sort of that uh, minor flood warning to continue uh, along the Nullagain and the Kungan rivers and this is mainly due to the slow moving thunderstorms that will continue to produce uh, isolated heavy falls through that region tomorrow and uh, going into the weekend. Now across the southwest of the state uh, through the southwest land division uh, it's a beautiful summer day today. 
bit on the warm side. It was windy this morning across the west. Uh, winds should ease in the afternoon and we should see fresh sea breezes along the coast. Now, the, um, there is a west coast trough that is uh, moving inland. Um, so as it progresses inland, we will see thunderstorm activity develop um, across the Gascoigne, um, the central and eastern parts of the uh, weed belt, and maybe into the far eastern parts of the Great Southern Australia, extending all the way down to the Esperance Coast this evening. Um, generally, rainfall through these regions, I'm expecting about 5 to 15 millimetres. Um, in some areas, it'll be less than 2 millimetres. Um, there is that risk of lightning with this activity. Elsewhere, warm and dry. Now, tomorrow, we are going to see a cold front uh, brush past the south coast. It's going to stand up a little bit more. So, we might see a few showers, generally 1 to 3 millimetres, south of about Mandra, all the way down to about... Uh, Probably um, uh, the uh, far southern parts of the uh, Great Southern. Again, very little rainfall. The further inland you go in these areas, uh, less than 0.5, but closer to the south coast, we may see up to three millimeters. Um, as that front progresses east, um, it'll continue to drag more showers and thunderstorms across the far eastern parts of the southwest land division tomorrow. And we could see some reasonable totals going into the interior. Uh, looking at warnings uh, today, um, so um, there is a fire weather warning out for the lower west, Brockman and Blackwood fire weather districts today, and that's due to those warm uh, and dry conditions. We will see an afternoon sea breeze move in, so a bit windy with that uh, sea breeze moving in across the far western parts of the southwest land division, so that'll keep those elevated fire dangers going into the afternoon, but should ease um, um, as the sun sets. Um, and I've already mentioned the minor flood warning for the Nalanga and, and uh, Kungan rivers. There's also uh, um, a cancellation of uh, strong winds across the Geraldton and Lenston coast. So no strong wind warnings across our coast today. Belinda? Thank you so much for all those details, Angeline. It's 21 to 1 here on the country. Uh, checking the rainfall figures now. So... This is the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and keeping an eye on five mills and over, starting in northern and eastern forecast districts. In the Kimberley, Bedford Downs Airstrip, 6, Country Downs, 15, Diggers Rest, 22, Drysdale River Station, 45, Alquestro had 7, Gibb River, 12 millimetres, Columbaroo had 70, Kingston Rest, 44, Kananara Aero, 13, Lake Argyle Resort had 29, Marion Downs, 5, Nicholson, 9, Parry Creek Farm, 26, Theda, 12, Troughton Island, 13, Truscott, 59, Wyndham Aero, 21, and Yampy Sound, 14. In the Pilbara, De Grey, 18, Cooline, 8, Mount Stewart, 8, and Parabadu Aero, 14. In the Gascoigne, Dalgetty Down 6, Minina 16, Mount Clare 11 and Murchison 14 and no rainfall over 5 millimetres in the southwest land division. ABC Radio, fire ban information. And because of today's extreme fire danger, there's a total fire ban for the shires around Perth 
and also for parts of the Midwest and southwest of the state. Starting in the Perth metropolitan area, it's for the shires of Armadale, Chittering, Gingin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jarradale, and Swan. In the Midwest, it's 2J. The southwest of the state, Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray, Waruna. The lower southwest, Boyup Brook, Bridgetown Greenbushes, and Donnybrook bailing up. And during a total fire ban, you must not have any outdoor fires, including using solid fuel barbecues, carry out any hot work like grinding and welding, and you can't go off-road driving using a four-wheel drive, quad bike, motorbike, bobcat or similar. And because it's Australia Day, most shires will have a harvest and vehicle movement ban, so it is essential that you check locally before you do any agricultural activity that could start a fire. There's a map of the affected area at the Emergency WA website and more about the do's and the don'ts during a total fire ban at the DFES site. Just repeating, there is a total fire ban today for the shires around Perth and for parts of the Midwest and Southwest regions. Great to have you along here on the Country Hour, 19 to 1. Now, you only have to look to the north of the state just to see the damage that's been done to the road network after major flooding in the Kimberley. It is not the only spot in Australia, though, that's assessing flood damage and calculating how much it's going to cost to fix. In New South Wales, it's estimated there's around 10,000 kilometres of regional roads that need to be repaired. According to farmers and regional councils, it's a billion-dollar problem and there's not enough money or enough people to do all the work. As David Clawton reports, there's now a call to allow farmers to fix the roads. It's self-help on a very big scale. It takes big machines to make a road, but many landholders have the equipment and are used to maintaining the roads on their own properties. Now they want to fix the council's roads, but they can't get insurance and liability cover. The vice president of the New South Wales Farmers Association, Rebecca Reardon, says it's a billion-dollar problem and the liability issue needs to be solved to find the people and equipment to do the massive job ahead. They've just thrown a billion dollars at Western Sydney and um, you know, earlier in the month they said half a million dollars to fix a few potholes around the state. Well, only two hundred and eighty million of that is going to rural and regional councils. And, you know, that's barely going to fill in a few potholes compared to what actually needs to be done across the state. We don't believe the government is contributing enough funds. In fact, what they're contributing is a joke compared to the actual size of the task. But we've got to find the resources. And a lot of our members and farmers are saying Look, I need my local road graded, repaired, just so I can operate. And they're offering the help, but they're getting caught up in red tape and saying when government says, oh, no, you've got to go to local council and local council doesn't want to touch it, there's a whole liability issue. And so the red tape is just a disaster for being able to get on and actually get the job done when all our farmers want is a decent road they can get in and out of town on and get their produce in and out of. Convincing the state government to spend almost 10 times more on regional roads will be tough, given there's not many votes in rural areas. But Rebecca Reardon says agriculture in New South Wales is worth $23 billion, and there's a lot of jobs and food tied up in the sector. Braidwood farmer Peter Jansen is one of those landholders who's offered to help his council repair the roads around his farm. 
His property was badly burnt in the Black Summer fires, so he was trying to get things back up and running when his access was cut off by recent floods. He had approval from council to repair sections of the council-managed access road himself, but he couldn't get an answer about who would cover insurance and liability. We've got quite a bit of equipment here. I've got a backhoe and a, and a 15-tonne excavator and we've got tractors and all sorts of things. Um, and my neighbours have recently got a, a new $100,000 tractor with a, a greater blade on it. And our, our internal farm roads are probably twice as good as the current access roads that are owned by council. But the problem is, again, they keep putting impediments in the way. Uh, you know, council have said to us, well... You can fix the roads, but you're not to touch this part and this part and that part. And essentially the parts that they exclude are the parts that really need doing first and foremost. And that's probably one of our greatest issues at the moment is getting vehicles across that creek crossing. So they weren't going to pay you to do any of that work, were they? No, no. And we didn't hadn't discussed money. They were not going to pay us. But you um, wanted to have some cover for liability if your equipment got damaged or someone got hurt, well, is that right? Well, we, we wanted to know our position more than anything else. And they flatly refused in their letters to us saying that they would not comment. So what was the outcome? Did the road get repaired? No, it's still diabolical. Have you got any crops uh, or livestock there that needs to... Uh, no, not, not at the moment. Uh, we're still recovering from the bushfire, essentially. We've had to basically give away what our aspirations were for the farm prior to the fire. Um, We were doing all sorts of cropping and things. We were trying to do, um, uh, you know, lots of trial agriculture, uh, hazelnuts and and, um, and other things. But anyway, the, the situation is now that we've just sort of been in recovery mode for the last three years. And, uh, you know, we've just experienced this horrendous situation with the, the local roads just not being safe or satisfactory to use on a daily basis. The local government association of New South Wales puts the total repair bill for regional roads at $2.5 billion, based on figures from the NRMA. President Daria Turley lives in Broken Hill, and she thinks the self-help model is needed because there just aren't enough council staff or contractors to get the massive job done. She wants the New South Wales Roads Minister to approve a trial, and she thinks farmers would do a good job. A lot of farmers do have their own certifications to do that. I know quite a few farmers who do. And that self-repair of roads does seem like the common sense approach. But, you know, that we are hamstrung by those liability and standards that councils have to uh, maintain. And the liability issue, I know there's one council, and uh, I think it's Canample Council, had put a proposal to the government around that. They had farmers on board. They thought it was viable supervision and the government had said the liability risk is too great. And yet sometimes we put staff onto equipment that haven't been there for years, you know. So I I wonder, you know, if the government could try that. But would the farmer be liable or would the council be liable? And if the government approved it, would they be liable? And it will be interesting to see and Sam Faraway is looking for solutions he's a minister his, his solution minister. though when we spoke to him was landholders should just get certified by the council and then you can be paid to do the work and covered by their liability but how practical is that well I don't know what certification he's talking about well, um, well any and, kind and of earth moving company would have to get certified through you know you'd have to be tender and you'd have to get approved yeah but you'd, you'd need to meet certain conditions 
And for most of it, the operator, the plant operator has to have a qualification and you can't just give that and they have to go through the process of um, approval. And if it was that simple, when Canamble Council asked to do that, the government would have said, here's the way forward. But unfortunately, they stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. With 10,000 kilometres of roads to be repaired and farmers all over the state struggling to get equipment, grains, livestock and people on and off farms, this issue isn't going away anytime soon. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I wonder if that could work here in Western Australia. Um, certainly hasn't got over the line in New South Wales, has it, by the sounds of things? Just when you think you've got a solution, you know, there are farmers there, they've got the equipment, prepared to do it. But uh, those liability concerns sort of uh, pop up as a roadblock, so to speak. On the text, Michael says, just spend the money like the Centennial Highway from Sydney to Canberra. Solid concrete. No washouts ever and no potholes ever. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. That's the text if you'd like to have your say. 11 minutes to one. Heading overseas to London now, where the Australian Trade Tasting Event is showcasing more than 700 wines from 200 wine producers to hundreds of trade and media in the United Kingdom. The UK is now Australia's largest wine market by volume and the event is a chance to showcase more local wines. Wine Australia's Marketing General Manager, Paul Turali, says the event is a great chance just to get some more Australian wines on the menus in UK pubs, clubs and restaurants. It's really an opportunity for the the category or the, the industry to be able to be there en masse and showcase things that are, that are new and different and exciting. So Australia, as you rightly said, um, is still the biggest, I think, of all the producers that are selling into the UK. But we have built most of that success over, over many decades through particularly the retail channels, so the, the big supermarkets and, and in the off-trade. And what the trade tasting that we've just undertaken in London has done, in fact, only yesterday, is really try to focus on uh, on trade and some of the smaller opportunities. It's, when I say smaller, not the big retail, the big supermarkets, but the smaller could be regional distributors and regional wholesalers that will supply into a lot of the on trade. So your restaurants, your pubs, your clubs, those sort of areas. So it's a great uh, it's a great opportunity to, to, to showcase new and different, but it's also a great opportunity to showcase premium with that idea around premiumisation. So that is the uh, primary focus for our Australia trade tasting. From my time in the UK, I, I did see a lot of Australian wine in, in what you call the off-trade, the, the bottle shops and things like that. But in the on-trade, those big European powerhouses of wine production, France, Spain, Italy, really still dominate those wine lists. How can Australia change that? One wine list at a time is the answer answer to that question. Both the Italian and the French have, let's be realistic, they've got 150, 200 years head start in many of those channels that we now need to try and gradually prize open. It shouldn't be underestimated either if you walk around London on every second, well, probably on every corner there's a pub, but on every second or third corner there's either Italian or a French restaurant. So they're already provide a great entree to be able to showcase wines from those particular countries. Unfortunately, we don't have that benefit from an Australian perspective. So it really is taking it one wine list, one distributor, one wholesaler at a time, but actually providing wines that offer terrific value 
in what they deliver. So whether that is, um, again, that relevance to the, to the market, so whether it's new varietals, whether it's new blends, whether it's the no and low or no at lower alcohol, all of those have got a role to play, but it's about being quite specific in what channels and what customers we're trying to access and just making sure that we're putting the right products in front of the people that are making the decisions. Was there anything in particular you were hoping the tasters would get out of the tasting event? Did you really target specific types of wine that Australia produces? We actually had a, a, a terrific mix uh, on what we had this year. So, and we'll continue to have strong presence in the traditional varieties, so Shiraz, Cabernet, Chardonnay, Riesling probably to a lesser extent. What we try very hard this time is uh, introduction of some of the new grape varieties, uh, or when I say new, new, new to Australia or emerging varieties in Australia. We've seen a lot of planting over the last few years for what would be the traditional, probably Italian and Spanish varietals in Australia, wines that are more savoury in nature than um, probably fruit-driven, which is probably where Australia has been, been known for over a long period of time. And also our sparkling wines. We're seeing great growth in sparkling in many of our export markets and our sparkling wines offer terrific levels of, of quality and um, terrific levels of value. So I think there's multiple areas that we were keen to probably just reinforce. And equally as importantly is the regionality. So I think we often talk internally about Australia being a, a continent of wine as opposed to a country of wine. And you look at the diversity in sort of Margaret River in the west, uh, sort of Orange in the east, uh, Mornington Peninsula, and you know all things South Australia in the middle. But like I said before, it's still you know, half of Australia's wine production. You may have seen over the time there's a graphic that often gets shown where Australia as a continent overlays Europe. Essentially, it's the same. Essentially, the same size. So what we're talking about in our diversity in Australia is applicable when we're saying, okay, well, what you might producing Bordeaux is very different to what you'll produce in Champagne or Alsace or Rioja or wherever it might be. We've got that in, in, in one country, not in a one continent, but one country as opposed to having to go to the length and breadth of Europe to do the same thing. Wine Australia's Marketing General Manager, Paul Turali, and he was speaking to Cassie Huff. Five minutes to one. Here on the Country Hour, news for you at one o'clock. We're back home now and the seasonal conditions and a few pests have created some challenges for wineries here in the Great Southern. Sam Palmer is the assistant winemaker at Castle Rock Estate in the Perongarups, about 50 kilometres north of Albany. Pest-wise, it's the snail numbers, which I think we're getting on top of now, but earlier on was a little concerning, but has been a nationwide sort of issue with snails. So um, that's probably one of the big standouts there. The other one's just another wet year after the sort of 21 growing season into 22 vintage. So the 22 growing season into this 23 was also another wet vintage. Wet growing season, I should say. So not as wet, but yeah, lots more water in the soil. So we're seeing nice big healthy canopies on the vines, which is awesome, but um, it will be interesting to see what that does for the rest of the vintage. And what will that mean, having that moisture again? What we're seeing, that, that so today is actually our first day of watering, so it's that very sort of late January. So up until now, we've had very little water stress in the vines, which is awesome. It means the vines are healthy, they're happy, they're you know, getting nice root growth and nice vine growth. For, we believe that sort of healthy vines and canopy produce healthy fruit, and therefore it's going to make a good premium wine. Has the weather delayed ripening and picking at all? 
I'd say yes, it has delayed it. So that you know, a bit wetter, a bit cooler. The water in the soil keeps things cooler for longer as well. So my very first harvest here was the twenty harvest, twenty twenty, um, and it was not much water in the soil, and so everything got quite warm. I mean, so we had a lot earlier ripening then and earlier harvest as a result. So this year, what we're seeing is it's probably in line with last year. But yeah, a bit more water in the soil means you're going to have yeah cooler temperatures, and so it's just going to slow things down a little bit. But um, if we have you know nice weather like we're having today, then yeah, it should be all good. By how long do you think you might be pushed back by? So we're normally picking first week of March, as a, and that's sort of starting to get a bit early for us. So I can't see it being too much later than mid-March, really. But it's, yeah, still a bit of time between now and then, so time will tell. Yeah. And going back to the pest issue that you mentioned before, how big of a problem have pests been for you this year? So, I mean, it's more the, our new plantings, the baby vines, essentially, that have got a bit more of a touch-up from the snails. The few areas that are still struggling, we're trying to get them on the feet, essentially, that we had to be a bit more vigilant with the snails. For the rest of the established vineyard, there's a bit of snail damage here and there, but it's um, the vines are old enough now that they're resilient and could grow past the snail infestation, essentially. We definitely had to bait our snails just to get on top of the numbers and then yeah just recently introduced ducks and into the vineyard and some geese as well just to help with the grass and hopefully it's like a nice sort of organic approach going forward and yeah if we get the numbers up on that it seems to be working pretty well so far. How effective has introducing this approach been? So early days still we've only just now got them really starting to explore into the vineyard but what we're finding is they're getting more confident and spreading further but we've only got i think it's like five or six drakes so it's not really many it'd be nice to get a hell of a lot more but from what we're seeing they're loving the snails and as they spread they're sort of eating more snails and moving further chasing where they are so if we can sort of have them strategically placed at each of our dams then most of our vineyard should be pretty well covered which is cool and speaking about snail numbers, how significant was that? Uh, I don't know specific numbers, but yeah, sort of nationwide, it seems like there's been snails everywhere and some pretty extreme cases in some spots. For us, higher than usual, but we're thinking now that we're sort of on top of it. We've got probably a bit more of a plan in place for coming into the next growing season, how to approach it, like when to, say, target our baiting or when to basically try and get more ducks essentially into the vineyard and see if that works a bit better for us and why do you think there was more uh just two very wet years unfortunately too we've moved away from undervine spraying so used to keep the undervine area quite clear of any sort of vegetation and so we've moved away from the sprays and doing more mowing and sweeping and things like that which has been amazing for getting that organic matter up underneath the vine which is great for vine health and soil health etc but as a result of that there's now more habitat for snails to you know live and eat and be happy that's sam palmer he's the assistant winemaker at castle rock estate uh, which you'll find in the Prongarups. So that's in uh, the Great Southern, about 50 kilometres north of Albany. He was speaking to Sophie Johnson. And great to hear that the the ducks and the geese are doing a very good job by the sounds of things, just keeping on top of those snails, which is great to hear. News is next.